Picture a drawing done in muted shades of yellow, blue, and red crayon. It's a hunting scene. A dozen buffalo are running towards the left edge of the paper, pursued by six Cheyenne warriors on horseback. The men hold bows, and some of the buffalo are bleeding from arrow wounds, falling behind the rest of the herd. The perspective is flat, as if you're viewing the scene from the side, as if the figures depicted in the drawing, the hunters, their horses, and the buffalo, had been frozen mid-gallop, pressed between two pieces of glass, an instant in time preserved. By the time the Southern Cheyenne warrior Bear's Heart made this drawing in 1875, the scene it depicted was a relic of the recent past. The wild buffalo that roamed the plains were dead, hunted into near extinction by white frontiersmen. The tribes of the Great Plains who followed the buffalo had been forced onto reservations, their food source decimated and their way of life criminalized. And Bear's Heart himself was thousands of miles away from his home, a prisoner of war held by the United States government. I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists who tackle the most pressing issues of their times through their work. This season, as we're all in a COVID state of mind, we're focusing on art made under conditions of confinement or isolation or imprisonment. This week, we're talking about Native American ledger art made by prisoners of war. My name is Emil Hermini Horses. I am a curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. I'm also a member of the Ogallala Lakota tribe from South Dakota, and I've been with the museum for the past 20 years. I spoke with Emil Hermeni Horses about how Bear's Heart ended up a captive. He was taken prisoner at the end of a military campaign known as the Red River War in 1874. This was a military campaign to force all the roaming tribes that were following the buffalo. Sometimes this was also called the Buffalo War because these groups migrated with the buffalo because it was their food source. But it was an effort to force the tribes of the Southern Cheyenne, the Comanche, the Kiowa, uh, the Arapaho, and force them onto reservations in Oklahoma. After the Civil War, despite the best efforts of the United States government to exterminate Native populations, the Plains Indians were hanging in there, resisting and adapting and generally surviving. And so in the 1870s, a plan was hatched. The generals empowered to rid the frontier of the Native tribes took a page from the book of William Tecumseh Sherman, the Union general who marched across Georgia, leaving a swath of scorched earth in his wake. Destroy your enemy's infrastructure and supplies, and you don't even have to go to the trouble of slaughtering them. Instead of killing Native Americans, simply kill their food source. In 1877, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Irving Dodge published an account of his time serving in the U.S. Army in the Great Plains. This is what he wrote about the Buffalo population. In 1871-2, there was apparently no limit to the numbers of Buffalo. In the fall of 1873, I went with some of the same gentlemen over the same ground. Where there were myriads of buffalo the year before, there were now myriads of carcasses. The air was foul with a sickening stench, and the vast plain, which only a short twelve month before teemed with animal life, was a dead, solitary, putrid desert. The Pulitzer Prize-winning Kiowa writer N. Scott Mamaday wrote about the reckless slaughter of the buffalo in his poem The Colors of Night. 
There was a man who killed a buffalo bull to no purpose, only he wanted its blood on his hands. It was a great old noble beast, and it was a long time blowing its life away. On the edge of the night, the people gathered themselves up in their grief and shame. Away in the west, they could see the hump and spine of the huge beast which lay dying along the edge of the world. They could see its bright blood run into the sky where it dried, darkening, and was at last flecked with flakes of light. By 1874, the tribes of the Southern Plains were in a bad way. The Red River War was the finishing blow. The U.S. military put incessant pressure on the native tribes, killing their horses, destroying stores of buffalo meat, and burning their lodgings. In 1875, the last free-roaming holdouts surrendered. So they were forced onto the reservation, and then the leaders, 71 men, two women and a daughter, were imprisoned in Fort Marion, and they were transferred to uh, St. Augustine, Florida. And this is where they were imprisoned for three years. So they were essentially prisoners of war. Yes. And why Fort Marion in St. Augustine, Florida? Like, why didn't they just, you know, bring them to whatever the local army encampment was? Well, they were trying to separate them from their community and from their people so there would be no further uprising. The, the climate was completely different from, from the, the Plains area, um, and so there was a sicknesses that they had to endure um, for, for that reason. In 1905, the Washington Post reported, Those acquainted with the Apache history know how this band of the tribe was moved to Florida, where they died in that strange climate like flies at frost time. Those prisoners of war who did not die were put under the charge of Lieutenant Richard Henry Pratt. He's the prince whose tagline was, kill the Indian, save the man. He was really trying to assimilate them into non-native cultures, teaching them Christian religion. He required them to do um, military procedures while they were there. Their hair was cut. They gave them military uniforms. Um, They had to, to march. They had to exercise. And if you're familiar with who Pratt was, he later founded the Carlisle Indian School in, in Pennsylvania. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School opened in 1879. So Pratt really did bounce right from the prisoners of war at Fort Marion to children at Carlisle. Native American children were coerced and in many cases stolen from reservations and placed in boarding schools like Carlisle where they were re-educated stripped of their culture, and cut off from their families. Abuse was common. Although Carlisle closed in 1918, Native American residential schools continued to operate into the late 20th century. On the one hand, we have the Navajo as we find him in the desert. Few of these boys and girls have ever seen a white man. Yet, through the agencies of the government, They are being rapidly brought from their state of comparative savagery and barbarism to one of civilization. I I was kept at the boarding school for six years, about 300 miles from my home. I ran away from that school six times. I just remember arriving there and donning new clothes and of course getting a haircut. 
The boys got the most uh, beating, and that's where I got frightened because I saw blood. I can hear them telling my mum that uh, that was the best thing for me. Our parents didn't want to worry us and warn us that we are going to be separated for a long, long time. I see him come around, Indian agent, in a boat, then collect some children from the reserve, and he would come back again and come and take some more. Pratt also discovered that many of his prisoners could draw. In some of the Plains Indian tribes, Warriors documented their victories through representational art. Imagine a, uh, an army uniform with all the medals on there. Um, it was their accomplishments. Depiction of war deeds, horse raids, to depict it on a warrior's shirt or his buffalo hide or his teepee, it was telling his story. These uh, accomplishments were depicted on muslin and canvas, and then later... These drawing styles were then depicted into these ledger books. When Emil says ledger books, picture those old-timey accounting books where a shopkeep might record the number of spare axles, yards of calico, and bottles of snake oil he sold to homesteaders. Those ledger books replaced the cloth, which replaced the buffalo hide, which replaced, if you go back far enough, the walls of caves. But the narrative tradition of documenting your life through drawing remained the same. It was the warrior's story that he was telling, things he experienced. Now, Pratt's whole thing was stripping his prisoners of all vestiges of their culture, their religion, their clothing, their language. But the drawing? The drawing he encouraged. In the beginning, he supplied them with books, drawing materials, and he would send this out to, um, like, his supporters. A Kiowa artist named Zotam does a scene where... Uh, It shows the prisoners uh, in three rows, all sitting with their backs uh, facing the way. It's called um, Bishop Whipple, speaking to the prisoners at Fort Marion, and he is giving a sermon to the prisoners at Fort Marion. It shows scenes of them uh, learning English, so it shows them in a classroom being taught by volunteer teachers. Pratt used the drawing as a fundraising tool the equivalent of a brochure for a conversion therapy camp filled with pictures of smiling, straight-looking teens. It should be noted that while today we view these tactics of forced assimilation as completely abhorrent, at the time Pratt's methods were seen as radically liberal. Pratt may have been a proponent of cultural genocide, but his contemporaries were into genocide genocide. So he would have sent these ledger books out to supporters to show that his captives were redeemable, men capable of artistic expression not mere savages. 26 of the prisoners created art. All of them except for two were Kiowa or Cheyenne, and notably they were all young. The oldest artist was the Cheyenne warrior making medicine, who was 31 at the time. Now the prisoners at Fort Marion were supposed to be the tribal leaders and most hardened warriors, but in actuality a bunch of them were just young dudes who were selected at random. One account says that a drunken U.S. soldier who was in charge of identifying the ringleaders of a tribe of Cheyenne, simply lined up all the men and counted off 18 from the right. So you've got these normal young guys in their 20s who aren't necessarily leaders in their communities far away from home, in a humid and hostile climate unlike anything they've ever experienced. Their hair has been cut, they've been given identical uniforms to wear that are constricting and foreign. Who knows what they're being fed, but it is probably not good. Why are they drawing? 
What can we learn about these 26 men? It's important to keep in mind that the art was created for several different purposes, including, as I mentioned, propaganda for Pratt. The prisoners sent drawings back home to their families, and they were also allowed to sell them to tourists and visitors. So an artist might have drawn a buffalo hunting scene because he was homesick and wanted to preserve the memory of that tradition for future generations. Or he might have drawn it because Florida tourists couldn't get enough of buffalo hunting scenes. Or because Pratt was like, hey man, I would view it as a special favor if you would draw a buffalo hunting scene that I can send to a wealthy benefactor who wants to invest in my sadistic boarding school. Whatever individual reasons the prisoners of war might have had for creating their works of art, in all cases they were exercising agency. They were captives who were systematically being stripped of their identities by Richard Henry Pratt, but he couldn't tell them how to draw. At one point, the prisoners were taken to a nearby island to camp and hunt sharks, the buffaloes of the sea, if you will. Three of the artists, Making Medicine, Bear's Heart, and Zotom, made pieces of art that depicted the shark hunt. They're all super different, and each artist has his own style and point of view. He's showing the viewer what he thinks is important, whether that's the landscape and geography of the island, or the teamwork that it took to catch the shark, or the narrative surrounding the hunt, what took place before and after. There's power in that. I get to decide how to tell the story of what happened to me. Drawing was one of the few sanctioned ways that the prisoners of Fort Marion were able to keep their cultural traditions alive. Back home on the plains, they would have commemorated a successful battle by depicting it on a buffalo hide. In Florida, the subject matter shifted out of necessity. Instead of war deeds and bear hunts, they drew military exercises and sermons by visiting preachers. But I think there's an uncomfortable tendency to view indigenous people as ancient and immutable, their rich traditions frozen in time, untouched by modernity. That feels like a freaky colonial fetish to me, a way of signaling reverence to a concept rather than respecting the living, breathing native people who are being oppressed today. The artists at Fort Marion weren't simply continuing their culture's tradition of narrative art. They were evolving it, exploding it using it to make sense of what must have been a truly transformational three years in captivity. There's a drawing called Reading Class at Fort Marion by the Kiowa artist Woha. In it, nine Native American men in dark jackets, blue pants, and neckties sit at desks which form a sort of T-shape. Five of the men are facing away from us, so we can only see their backs and their identical short haircuts. The other four are in profile, and they sport attentive, benign smiles. They're facing a woman who stands in front of them with a book in one hand and a pointer in the other. She's wearing a dark, long-sleeved dress with puffed shoulders and a very fancy hat trailing a red ribbon. She's smiling too, but she's decidedly witchy-looking, her face all severe angles, and the one eye that we can see colored in completely black. Her gaze is over the tops of the heads of her students, and she's looking at a tall figure who stands behind the men on the right-hand side of the page. He has long hair adorned with a feather. The teacher and the students and the benches they sit on are all colored in, but this tall, ghostly figure is just a line drawing in black and white, seemingly unfinished. He has a mouth and nose, but no eyes, for example and the outline of his body is a column, as if he were wrapped in a blanket. But when the lines reach where his feet should be, they just stop. 
as if he were disappearing. As if, in the next instant, the witchy woman might wave her pointer once more and make him vanish completely. Glitter and Doom is hosted and produced by me, Mackenzie Bagan. It's produced and edited by Isabel Alcantara, and our executive producers are Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.